Welcome, everybody, to the Trap Podcast. I am your host, Bill Botch. It is February 1st. January is behind us. The year is flying by. And Andrew Burnett has gotten a DUI on a golf cart. So uh, you can't even make this stuff up. Anyway, um, we were hoping for some news uh, today, hoping that we were going to see a Timo Meyer trade. And uh, the news of the day was that our assistant coach, who we plan on being the head coach of the team sometime soon, got a DUI, only to find out later that the DUI was him in a golf cart. What the fuck? <laughs> like, Florida man gets DUI in golf cart. So I could see that everybody is enjoying the all-star break. I mean... I don't. I don't even know. We have a special guest with us today. So we have um, the world famous, the uh, the big tickle is going to join us, people. The big tickle is in the building. How you doing, tickle? What's happening, buddy? Thank you, Billy. I appreciate having me. Uh, being a, a Florida native, you have no idea how often these golf cart DUIs actually happen. So. <laughs> Is it is it common practice down there? Does that really happen? It does happen. It does happen. You have to you have to mind your p's and q's when you're on a golf cart. I mean, isn't that the whole point of having a golf cart? Is that you you can go out drinking and you can get home safe without you know killing anybody? It does seem besides playing golf. It does seem like the reports that I've seen, he was a little bit targeted, but. you know, I'm not gonna. I think criticize yeah, the police. It, it may be it may be some salty Florida Panther um, fans that set him up. He he might have been set up. Um, which I I yeah I didn't want I didn't want to be the one to say it, but I mean, let's face it, Florida is off the chain, and you know you're never safe in a golf cart, in a car, on a motorcycle. Um, I know I know what it's uh, uh, like it's... to be set up. I know what it's like to be set up, guys. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, Bobby, Bobby's yeah. back. <laughs> What's up, buddy? Um, wow, haven't heard from you in a couple episodes. You have no idea. You have no idea the stuff that I go through and how many times I've been set up. Never in a golf cart, but um, it's it's brutal out there. Everybody, everybody doesn't have it as good as you guys. That is uh, that is good to know, and um, you know the way I look at it is, people make mistakes, and uh, I don't think that this should cost Andrew Burnett his job. Um, he's a human, and he was had a week off, and he went out with his wife and had too many drinks, and planned on getting home in his golf cart, and gets a DUI. I mean, they said that the the cop like sat there for 15 minutes and waited for him to leave. So, I mean, 
sounds like uh sounds like an inside job to me. I know an inside job when I see one. All right, Bobby. Enough. And um, uh, can, so can can I, can I, can I just ask you a question, real quick, Bill? Sure. Um, in in all honesty, how do you think the organization responds to this? Um, when the reports came in, to be honest, I was out playing golf in a golf cart, um, and I was playing with the pickle, the uh, infamous pickle, oh, her father, pickle. and uh, oh, the pickle, the pickle. Yeah, the pickle, and um, you know. I mean, like, that, the now deal? there's a guy that knows about golf carts. He does know about golf carts. <laughs> I don't even want to get into the whole thing, but no, uh, no, I don't. I don't want to get into the whole thing. But in 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 all seriousness, how do you think that the organization responds to something like this? Because he didn't think that it was a big deal, and I guess you know. I thought it was a little that they might have a a bigger response to this in that you know it, yeah, you never know how, it, how 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 an organization is going to respond these days to something like that. Yeah, no, that's the truth. I mean, anytime somebody gets arrested and faces legal charges, it's a big deal. I mean, especially uh, a guy who's supposed to be a leader and the kids are supposed to look up to him. Um, I don't think that they'll suspend him. I think, you know, if they'll probably make him do some sort of alcohol rehabilitation program of some sort. But, I mean, there are worse things that could have happened. It's not like he hurt anybody. I, I do not condone it by any means. But it's just like, I mean, the guy got pulled over in a golf cart. I, I, I don't know. I don't think the team. I don't no, think it's going to be that big of a deal. I don't think I that it's not, that anyway. big of a deal. I don't think that it's that big of a deal either. Um, living in Jupiter, Florida, we have uh, spring training for uh, the St. Louis Cardinals. We we have spring training for the Miami Marlins, and um, I believe it was a. a uh, Cardinals coach, head coach that wind up getting pulled over, uh, literally right down the block for, from me during spring training, um, you know, with a DUI and in a, in a golf cart turning into, no, he was in a, 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 a real full size car. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk yeah. about, I mean, there, who's there, the most famous person a, that got pulled over in, in Jupiter and, Right Got down it. the street, obviously, obviously Tiger, um, but he wasn't drunk. In all no, fairness, he, was, he wasn't he, drunk. Yeah, so that's... We love the Tiger. Uh, we love the Tiger. Yeah. What a comeback. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. People like a comeback story. This shouldn't... I mean, he'll. This is, he's going to have to deal with this, uh, and it's obviously embarrassing, but... I would just hate mistakes. to see it... I would just hate Throw to the team off. see yeah. it thwart. Yeah, exactly. Thwart the, the team's momentum. Yeah, I know. This isn't the news that we were looking for. We were hoping for some uh, some trade news. I still think that there's a possibility. You know, uh, Lou Lamorello made a big made a big play when um, 
he went and traded for Bo Horvat, which originally I, I it looked lopsided to me, and I thought that um, Vancouver made out on the deal. But then I looked at it more, and it seems like a pretty fair deal for both sides. And in fact, you know the Islanders aren't that far out of a playoff spot. I think it's like two games or three games, or maybe it's even three points. Um, and Beauvillier was not doing anything. Atu Ratty was a uh, was a was a guy who was you know top one hundred pick in the draft. It wasn't like he was a first rounder. Um, and I think Bo Horvat is going to make an immediate impact on the team. You're going to play with Brock Nelson and Matthew Barzell. And let's be real. I mean, they have a really um, the Islanders have a good team. They're kind of sneaky good. They got Ilya Sorokin. They have the goaltending. And Lou is trying to make a push for the playoffs this year. And uh, that's one of the things that he is known for doing. He wants to win all the time. And I'm going to do an episode on Lou Lamorello because um, so, so what we're doing is there's a, we have a week off and I realize that I am one of the older people that do the podcast for the devils. Um, there are a lot of people who are weren't around to watch the Devils during their Stanley Cup era runs. Um, they they weren't around then, or they were too young, or they weren't into hockey. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna touch on some of the legends for the franchise during this week off. Um, one of the guys that I'm gonna want to talk about is Lou Lamorello. And if you're, let's say, 32 years old and you only dealt with Lou at the end of his stint with the Devils, you think he's a shitty GM, you know? And it's like, the fact is, Lou Lamorello, and he did. He left the Devils in a really horrible place and he had a bad couple years. There's no doubt about it. But this is not my opinion. This is the opinion of respected sports journalists and people that know what they're talking about when it comes to sports management. Lou Lamorello is known as one of the greatest general managers in the history of American sports in any, I'm talking about any sport. There were so many different people from the NBA and MLB that actually reached out to Lou Lamorello to talk to him about efficiency in players and finding talent and this and that. If you go through Lou's draft records, it is the guys that he drafted became, I mean, stars all over the league. He was like, he was batting a thousand. I mean, he drafted Sheldon Surrey, Jason Smith. I mean, Scott Niedemeyer, like Marty Brodeur, like on and on and on. And we'll, we're going to do a, a thing on him because there, I just feel like there's a lot of young fans who think uh, old senile Lou and like, I get it. The guy is old, but he demanded a lot of respect, and he ran a tight ship. He did really well with contracts, and he won. He built three teams that he built a dynasty, which uh, you have to give him credit for. But so I wanted to start out with this thing, and the first pr- guy that I wanted to cover is very, is very much so personal to me. So I am a diehard sports fan. Have always been. Um, I grew up in Thomas River, but my father 
was from uh, Kearney, which is about 15 minutes away from the Meadowlands. And we grew up diehard uh, New York Giants fans. And my grandfather was a Giant fan and a Devil fan. And we ended up, when I was a kid, I was like obsessed with uh, Lawrence Taylor. Like Lawrence Taylor, the whole 86 Giants into the 90s Giants. And I got into hockey when I was probably, it was like 1992. So I was about 10 years old. And um, this guy became my favorite athlete ever. And I'm talking about our captain, Scott Stevens. So Scott Stevens, to me, um, he embodied what it meant to be a captain, a leader, to lead by example, the most fierce competitor I've ever seen. He was like literally as fierce of a competitor as a, a Michael Jordan, a Lawrence Taylor. And I'm not saying that he was the greatest hockey player that ever lived. I'm just talking about his compete level and his seriousness and his respect from other players when he was on the ice was unrivaled. He was the definition of what it meant to be an intimidation, an intimidation factor, but a respect factor, and nobody was trying to fuck with this guy. Um, so I originally got into hockey because my neighbor was a, a Flyer fan, and he was playing like street hockey. He brought me to um, it was uh, the Flyers do the the uh, Flyers wives fight for lives carnival thing. It's basically a they go there, you get to take pictures with the players and whatnot, and they donate all the money to uh, charity for cancer. So I went, and I got to meet Eric Lindros, and it was like, yeah, it was like 1993, I think. Now, Eric Lindros was, he, was, he basically, like, broke all the records in the World Junior Championships. He was like Connor Bedard to that era, except he was six foot four and like 215 pounds when he was 18 years old. The league was not that big back then. This was like a freak. He was like a grown man who was coming into the league with size and hands, insane skating ability um, or scoring ability, and it was a big deal. It was a real big deal. He it, So as you know, um, Eric Lindros refused to play. The Nordiques had the pick. He refused to play for a Canadian team because the Canadian dollar was not worth as much as the American dollar. And this really pissed his home country off. So the, the Nordiques and the Flyers made a trade and the Flyers gave up a ton of picks and a ton of players, which ended up turning into Peter Forsberg and Mike Ricci who both went on to win Stanley Cups. So, I mean, technically, I think that the Nordiques slash Colorado Avalanche got the best of the deal. But um, anyway, Eric Lindros was like, a, a, like my first introduction to hockey. And the first game I ever went to, this is so embarrassing, but the first game I ever went to, I was a Flyers fan. 
And we went to Continental, or it was Brendan Byrne at the time. It was like 1993. My dad, my brother, my cousin, and um, and Scott Stevens, hip check, Eric Lindros. And it was one of the first memories of hockey I've ever had. I've never seen anything like it. He literally was did a flip in the air. Couldn't believe it. Um, and to this day, I, I don't see it online or anything, and I've looked for it. But it was right in front of me, and it it blew my mind. I never, I didn't even know that that was possible, right? So, um, we start watching a little bit of hockey, and my dad and my brother become Devil fans, and I decide to side with them. I was still very influential. I didn't, uh, I was easily influenced. I didn't, I didn't know what I what I was doing. So we start going to Devils games, and. Um, it was awesome. It was it was some of the best years of my life. So we started in 93. 1994 is when we really, really got sucked in. And, like, it was the perfect time. This is when Devils, Rangers, Game 7, Mateau, Seinfeld, or the Devils, all of this is happening. The Devils are stacked. We have Scott Needham, a young Scott Niedemeyer. We have a Scott Stevens. Um, we have... Brodor emerges from, you know, outplays Chris Terreri. It was, it was amazing. But um, I ended up falling in love with the, with the game, and Scott Stevens became like an idol to me. This guy was, was amazing. And we're going to get into his story because it's, it's really, really impressive. And this guy, Scott Fitzgerald, who's a writer for The Athletic, did a fucking smear campaign about how Scott Stevens... It was supposed to be, we're ranking the top 100 or top 50 NHL players of all time. And he did a smear job on Scott Stevens that was disgraceful and just basically horrible journalism, but I guess that's what you get. Um, and I figured it would be a cool opportunity to let some of our younger fans really know the history behind the franchise's greatest captain, three-time Stanley Cup winner, number in the rafters, from somebody who was there and watched the whole thing happen. So, um, Kyle, you got anything on any of this? Yeah, I mean, when I saw that athletic article come out, um, just to be completely honest, I have i'm totally off social media in terms of facebook instagram wouldn't even know how to set up a tiktok um the only reason i set up a twitter was for hockey updates um needed to see those amanda stein <laughs> you know uh lineups anyway um I do have a subscription to The Athletic, and I wound up reading that article, and I think that smear job is an adequate explanation of what that was. Um, and I had just recently essentially signed up for Twitter. I think I was signed into your Twitter so I can get hockey updates at that time and I said to myself I wound up saying to you privately 
um, if people reviewed Muhammad Ali's fights in terms of concussions, he would be a monster nowadays if you just reviewed it on concussions. Scott Stevens, this is what the game was at that point. And whether you agree with it, that it was too barbaric, or whether it wasn't, he never got penalties on his biggest hits. And his biggest hits always came in the playoffs at the most crucial times. And again, this is this is what the game was and and Yeah. I, it, I, yeah, I, I exactly what you're saying. It's it was a completely different game. But would they be penalties now? Yeah, they would. They would. But would Ronnie Lott be any less of a safety because you're not allowed to hit a receiver coming over the middle, uh, the middle in the NFL now? Does that make Ronnie Lott any less of a of a great player? It's like if you looked at the game then, Scott Stevens had one elbowing penalty in his entire career, one, and it's like. If you wanted to take somebody's head off, you would do it with an elbow. The amount of clutching and grabbing and the physicality of the sport was was crazy. People loved the physicality of the sport. They loved it. And to be honest with you, <clears throat> it takes a real professional with precision to hit people the way that Scott Stevens did. That is an art. And to catch somebody with their head down and not take yourself out of position and know if you have numbers coming back that are going to cover for you. And all those things, it just takes, I mean, offensive players are pretty damn smart and they're pretty skilled. They can move out of the way. They're aware of what's going on too. You have to really be aware of the ice. He was on another level. And on top of just open ice hits, his hip checks were uh it was a it was a piece of art, and that is just a a move that doesn't exist in our game anymore. I think I saw like Jonas Siegenthaler tried to throw a hip check, just not too recently, maybe like earlier this month, and he actually kind of he kind of did. It was it wasn't anything crazy, but that is a lost art. And I mean, talk about timing and strength and everything that goes into that. That is a whole nother level of of um, physicality that you no longer see in the game. It wasn't just the big hits. You want, to, and like, you, you want to get you want to get into a whole nother level. Is there's a difference between throwing a hip check along the boards, and there's a difference between throwing a hip check open ice, <laughs> which he absolutely perfected. I mean, Ty Domi throwing him. I, I I'm saying it's it's truly. I mean, throwing an an open ice hip check where someone is, you know, straight up head on the ice, skates in the air, and it is a clean hit, that is an absolute art for him. And just to be, again, straight up non-up homers, we were the biggest fans of, especially you, you were the biggest fan of uh, Darius Kasparaitis for being able to do the, the same thing not it with the the same in, intensity that maybe Stevens was able to, to do but he it was a much smaller guy but 
able to deliver. The yeah, the timing too. Yeah, exactly. The timing. It, it, I mean, that it, it, it's it's a it's a serious art skill. form. Yeah, it's a yeah, serious. It's skill. an art form. And um and and Casperitis, he he was he was really good and like the the thing that like kind of that kind of gets me a little bit is everyone always brings up the hits when it comes to Scott Stevens because he was an insanely <laughs> physical player and those hits are legendary and he probably is the best open ice hitter in the history of the game, in my opinion. I mean, there's very few people that are in the same conversation. Um, like a, a Nick Cromwell is one of them, but there's, yeah, you know, absolutely. There, there's, there's very few people who could do that consistently and not get beat, not made look and not to be made to look stupid. Um, but the story of Scott Stevens to me is the most impressive thing. And, um, when you really look at his career and understand how good of a player this guy was, it's remarkable. So I'm going to kind of like give you a brief rundown of his, um, of his career. And then we'll kind of just like, we'll, you know, chime in whenever you, whenever you feel like you want to. So, um, sure. Stevens is from Kitchener, Ontario, which is like, um, a, a suburb outside of Toronto, which is like, uh, famous for the Kitchener Rangers, which is an OHL team, which he was drafted by. So he ended up playing for the Kitchener Rangers. It's also, it used to be the home of a hockey stick company. So um, he basically, he played in the OHL. Um, and then, and what's crazy is his brother, Jeff, was a scout for the Devils. Um but let's see. He was drafted in 1982 by the Washington Capitals. He was drafted fifth overall. So he was a very high prospect uh, coming out of the OHL for um, his offensive capabilities as well. Right. So they thought that he was, uh, yeah, like this wasn't. They didn't know him as Scott Stevens that was going to murder Paul Correa at the time. Like they thought he was just a really good hockey player. He ended up coming in. He never played in the AHL or the minor leagues. He came right in, and he played as an 18-year-old. He scored on his first shot ever in his first game. He had a goal. Um, and he had 25 points in his first year, and he finished third in the Calder Trophy uh, voting. He ended up... Um, in the 1984-85 season, he had a breakout year. So he set a team record for defense. He had 16 power play goals um, and ended up with 21 goals on the season. He ended up playing in an all-star game. Um, he led the Capitals' defense in scoring for the first time and ended up with 65 points on the season. It's like, that's pretty impressive for a, def for a defenseman. Um, then in 1986-87, he spent a career-high 283 minutes in the penalty box. So this guy was insanely physical and was not scared to throw down. Now, mind you, when he was 18 years old and he came into the league, he was like 6'1", and he was over 200 pounds. This guy is built like a brick shithouse. He was a man amongst boys, even as a kid. 
And I listened to this thing about what he's doing in retirement. And you can't even make this shit up. He's like, I'm chopping down trees in the backyard. It's a good way for me to let out aggression and get some, get some uh, exercise in. And the people like interviewing him were just like, dude, you're, what are you like ripping them out of the ground with your hands and like breaking the trees in half? Like he's just such, he was so thick and so uh, solid. The fact that he's, you know, in his 50s now or however old he is. Let's see, he was born in 1964. So he's going to be 60 and the guy's literally cutting down trees in his free time. It's bizarre to me, but... um, I have a feeling that Fabian Zetterlin is somewhere alongside of him. <laughs> he doesn't have he doesn't have the, the attitude though. No, n- no one does, and that's what that's why we're highlighting Scott's. I, I love myself some Fabian. All right, that's my boy. <laughs> all right, take it easy, Bobby. Um, so, uh, in 1987, uh, 88. He sets the Capitals' record for the most assists and most points by defenseman in a game. He's got five assists. Uh, he would score. He went on an eight-game point streak, consecutive game point streak, which was a team record. He finished the year second on the team in scoring with 12 goals and 60 assists for 72 points. And uh, he finished second behind Ray Bork in the Norris Trophy candidate race. Ray Bork fucking tormented this guy his entire career. People love Ray Bork. I can't stand Ray Bork. Um, And Stevens finished between second, third, fourth, seventh in the Norris Trophy race over and over and over, and they just kept giving it to Ray Bork. Now, Ray Bork is a good player, but don't tell me that he was the best player, best defenseman in the league every year. And and the the whole... Colorado Avalanche, Ray Bork, uh, like, let him raise the cup before everybody. Ray Bork played for the Bruins for, like, 700 years and then played for the Avalanche for a year and a half. It's like they were so obsessed with getting Ray Bork a Stanley Cup. It was it was obnoxious. But anyway. Um, Calm down, Bill. Take it easy, pal. All right. All right. So anyway. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this with – I know that there's going to be a ton of hate about this, but fuck Ray Bork. Fuck Ray Bork. And his big stupid head with his stupid haircut. But anyway, so um, Stevens plays for the Washington Capitals for eight years. He basically breaks every single record in the Capitals' uh, history for a defenseman. This is when stuff gets really spicy. He decides that he is going to sign a deal with the St. Louis Blues who courted him and offered him a four-year deal worth $5.145 million, which, and he was a restricted agent, which at that time was an insane amount of money. Like, they weren't paying defensemen that kind of money. So it was an offer sheet. So this is how crazy this is. So Washington had the option to match the offer sheet or they could decline and receive the picks. They got five first-round picks for him. Can you imagine that? Five first-rounders for Scott Stevens. It's like, holy crap. 
they went on and they like picked Sergei Gonchar, who's who's like a legend. Um, but man, I mean, talk about a haul. So he he ends up he he was the highest paid defenseman in the league, um, and he got a one point four million dollar signing bonus. And what this did was it drove the price of defensemen basically through the roof. So guys like um, Chris Chelios and Kevin Hatcher and Ray Bork, they all demanded more money from their general managers. Um, and then actually it led to part of the reason why there was a lockout in 1994-95. Um, so he was named the captain. He plays in St. Louis. And um, the next year rolls around. And St. Louis does the same shit to the Devils. And they go and they poach Brendan Shanahan from us. And I mean, Brendan Shanahan was the future of the team. So they offer him this crazy deal and they don't have the picks to give the Devils now. So they offer Curtis Joseph, who was like young, insane goalie, Rob Brendamore, and two picks, and the Devils turn it down and say, we want Stevens. So they go to an arbitration, and they award the Devils just Stevens for poaching Brendan Shanahan from them. So the news comes out, and Stevens doesn't want to play in New Jersey. They had just built a house in St. Louis, he had just had his first kid, and he planned on trying to stay in St. Louis for the rest of his career. Now, they end up, they start, um, he doesn't show up to camp. So now three weeks goes by, he's still not there, and it pissed everybody off. So Danico had a problem. Um, Kirk Muller had a problem. He ends up showing up and becomes arguably the greatest player in the history of the franchise. So he ends up, he actually gets a concussion, which is going to play a pretty big role in this story um, because it ended his career. And with the, with the type of game that he played, he obviously, he ended up with a lot of head injuries as well. So it wasn't always his victims that took the, the brunt of everything. He took a pretty good looking himself once in a while. Um, so he posted uh, 18 goals and 60 assists and had a career high in points. He won the NHL plus minus award. He was a plus 53. Is that good? So the only player that has ever beat that is Vladimir Konstantinov. Now, this is the year that they make it, and they, they go all the way to the conference fire, finals versus the Rangers. This is 1994. They lose in double overtime. And, of course, he finishes second in, Norris, in the Norris Trophy race, which was by four votes and is the closest that anyone's come to winning the Norris Trophy in voting history. So he's been screwed by Ray Bork twice now. Fuck that guy. Um, now at this point we, are, I am a kid, I am completely sold on the devils. 
the Rangers just beat us. They won the cup. The whole the whole 1940 thing is over now. And the, we know that the Devils are going to be good. We know what they're capable of. We know that Marty Brodeur is going to be an amazing goalie. We know that Scott Niedemeyer is insane. You know, we got Stefan Riche, Claude Lemieux. Go down the go down the line. Um, and of course, what happens? There's a Bill lockout. Garen. What? Bill Guerin, yeah, yeah. There's a Bill, lockout. Yeah. So they miss. They don't play for half a year. So we're like kids. We're like foaming at the mouth. We're waiting for them to come back. And when I tell you that this guy literally every single night played with so much intensity and so much like well thought out planned aggression and I mean he would dominate people. People did not want to go near the front of the net because he would dominate them. And um, like he would get into a scrap with somebody in front of the net and there would be a scuffle. He would drop them versus guys who were like super heavyweights, like guys that you don't have now. Like every team had a guy who was Ryan Reeves on their team. And he would fight like Bob Probert and fight like, you know, um, Dave Brown and Rob Roy and Marty McSorley and like, I mean, he. I'm talking like the best of the best. Meanwhile, he's the captain of the team. He's getting. He's four votes away from winning a Norris Trophy. It's like, could you imagine watching Ray Bork fight Bob Probert? What would happen to him? Maybe with that big head, he'd break Bob Probert's hand. But um, he he ended up. He he just led the team on the ice. They said he was like a man of very few words, but he would get into like a fight, and someone would piss him off. And they would like throw him in the penalty box, and he would like be trying to get out of the penalty box, like screaming. The glass used to be lower. He would be like screaming over the glass, like, I'm gonna kill you when I get out of here. And it was crazy to see that. Like, typically, people that play with that much anger and that much energy, they their game's not very well rounded. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard. It's how do you, how does that happen? But he managed to like, he just was under control. He was a loose cannon, but he was under control and knew what he was doing and a very, very smart player. And he never got the credit for gap control and penalty kill and block shots. Like he would go down and block shots over and over and over. And never once did you see him limp off the ice or go down or nothing. He took a slap shot to the head one time and he went down and had to have his ear sewn back on and then came back. But it's like he was just so tough. Like that's the only way I could put it. He was just a tough guy um, who was very smart. And and when Jacques Lemaire came to the team, he basically told the team, listen, you guys are going to have to give up your identity. And Scott Stevens, I don't care that you put up 75 points in Washington and that you can sc- you scored 16 power play goals and this and that. I need you to be a good defenseman. And he sacrificed all the accolades and everything in order to lead the team in becoming what was one of the most um, respected and disciplined defensive teams in the league who would counterpunch. And it was all led by him. And... It, and if he was willing to do it, nobody else on that team 
was going to have a problem with it. Um, I'm pretty sure his teammates were as scared of him as everybody else in the league. So the lockout ends in 1994-95. They ended up playing half a season. And they came out really slow, and they only won nine of their first 24 games. We were wondering what was going on, but they managed to get into the playoffs, and it was an amazing playoff run. Um, and they played, obviously, the Detroit Red Wings in the Stanley Cup, who were he- heavy favorites. But the thing with Stevens was once the playoffs rolled around and seven-game series would start, he would make an example out of one guy, sometimes two guys, sometimes three guys. But if you came across the center of the ice with your head down, someone was going to get freight trained at some point. And um, whether it was, I mean, he did it to Ty Domi. He did it to Shane Willis. He did it to Kozlov, obviously, that Kozlov hit. Now, these are at the biggest moments of someone's career. I mean, it's, it's the Stanley Cup. It's like it's one thing seeing this thing on a Thursday night in January. It's another thing to see somebody get, I mean, totally knocked out cold on a clean hit at center, you know, crossing the blue line into the zone during the Stanley Cup. That's by your by your team's captain. I mean, it was a total momentum swinger. And he talks about how he would see the life of the other team on the bench just totally just die and one of the famous you know the famous scott stevens your next clip is him talking to dino cicerelli who i really respect dino cicerelli scored a shit ton of goals from in front of the net and was a very hard-working blue collar yet very talented and knew exactly what he was doing in tight spaces tipped a lot of pucks he was a guy that worked for every goal of his he had over 500 goals and but he was a tough character and Scott Stevens told him straight up like you're next dude like if I catch you in front of the net or I catch you with your head down it's over dude so uh we got to see this pretty much every night um on a nightly basis we had uh we had half season tickets but man it was it was something to encounter every night and it's it was the most impressive thing was the consistency that he did it with and the consistency of the of the uh, energy that he brought to the game and the, and the ferocity the ferocity um, was was really it was insane. So the Devils end up winning their first cup in 1995. Obviously, um, he is so he's a Stanley Cup winner. And then from 2000 through 2000, so in 2000, the the Devils end up playing the um, the Philadelphia Flyers in the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, the Devils were down 3-1, to one, and Eric Lindros had missed a big portion of the season due to a concussion. And when I tell you Eric Lindros and Scott Stevens had a rivalry, I mean, this is not like some Matthew Kachuk rivalry type shit. This was a real rivalry. Like, you would circle the date on the calendar and be like, Eric Lindros and Scott Stevens are playing each other tonight. It was that good. And I mean, Eric Lindros would headbutt him, headbutt Scott Stevens in the head behind the play, in the face behind the play. 
And then Scott Stevens would, you know, hit him from behind into the boards. And these guys, and the best part was, is like they were two of the most respected players in the league. These guys were superstars. And they were physically, I mean, they they would drop the gloves and beat the shit out of each other. And like, kudos to Eric Lindros. He he beat up Scott Stevens a couple times. Like, these were fair fights. This wasn't like Scott Stevens picking on a young kid goal scorer. Like, these were like, this is real deal hockey. Um, but in 2000 in the Stanley Cup playoffs, I'll never forget it. It was Eric Lindros's second game back. And, you know, they're thinking the league was pushing him, obviously. He was big superstar kid. And he's one win away from going to the Stanley Cup. And I'm at my senior prom. That's how old I am. I'm 700 years old. And um, I I get like a I find out through the great older even what I thought you were even older than that yeah um why don't you put a little energy into your voice Kyle what do you what do you uh, wife got the muzzle on you huh huh um. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I'm just listening to your story. Go ahead. All right. Go on. All right. So I'm at my prom. There's no cell phones or anything. And I hear that Scott Stevens knocked out Eric Lindros. And I'm like, I would never miss this game. And I'm like, holy shit. So I remember um, coming home and like wearing, I know we were like on our suits or whatever. And we had like the the old flat screen TV that was like, size of like a you know a giant safe or something potato you know potato chip what's that yeah. <laughs> a giant potato chip <laughs> it was just this like huge it was this like huge television um that you could you had to stand directly in front of in order to see the picture if you moved to the side at all it was just gray but anyway we we my dad and, and my brother they taped a game for me and i came home and they had the tape ready and they put it on and i watched stevens hit Lindros in the famous hit with his mouthpiece hanging out and him crumbled on the ground. And I was like, oh, my God. And the Devils came back and won the series. Um, Patrick Eliash was a big part of that, obviously, with his goal. And um, I I don't know why, but I, I want to say it was like the first time a team ever came back from a 3-1 victory in the conference finals. It was a, it was a big, big win. Um and the Devils go on, and they they play uh, they play the Dallas Stars in the Stanley Cup. I went to Game One. I went up there. One of my buddies and we scalped tickets. Uh, I was 18, and we got we ended up getting tickets last row at the top of Continental Airlines. And I mean, that place was big. That place held 19,040 people, like 1940, like the New York Rangers. We were all the way at the top. We were there for game one, and the Devils put it on Ed Belfour. Ken Danico scored a goal. It was, it, was, it was awesome. But the Devils ended up going on and winning the cup. Now this is Steven's second cup, and he wins the Stanley Cup MVP. Um, and it was just really – it was pretty It was pretty amazing. He had also he, – he knocked out Damon Lankow too um, with a concussion as well in the flyer series too. So he, he was really laying the wood in that series. 
But he ended up winning the the con the Consmite Trophy, and uh, he finished third in the Norris Trophy candidate race. He never got the Norris, which is it's mind bottling to me. It's like my mind's in a it's, bottle. It's absolute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the fact that he he has never won that is absolutely. Um, it means they don't care about defense. Right, it's 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 weird because um, the game was so different, and he embodied everything that in the game at that point uh, exemplified defense. And I just I can't I I have no idea why he had never won that. That's it's like impossible. It's like they must have like hated New Jersey because it was a smaller market or something. I don't know. Like it just seems ridiculous to me. I mean, the Devils went on to win the Stanley Cup. When was the last time you saw somebody win the Consmite Award who didn't win the Cup on the losing team? And that's what happened to the Devils in 2003, which is when he took a puck to the head, um, which was scary. He ended up coming back the next game, and that's when he killed Paul Correa. And it looked like the guy was dead. Now, this is like probably to me, this is the only questionable Scott Stevens hit. Um, Definitely. I, Definitely. I like, I understand why Paul Correa would be mad. And for a guy that played the game, uh, Stevens played the game the right way. Like, no doubt about it. Like, if you, if you go back, because they, at this point, they've interviewed the Ron Francis's, the Shane Willis, like they've interviewed all these people and Eric Lindros is a different story, but they interviewed everybody else and they're like, he, he didn't play dirty. He just murdered me. You know what I mean? Like his, his elbows weren't high. Now Stevens and Lindros had a rivalry. Paul Correa was pissed about the hit. That hit, I can understand how people thought that was a little late. It was like one second too late. And he, he just, he creamed them. It was scary because it looked like he stopped breathing. Um, and then when you saw him breathe and his, and the, the, um, his visor fog, fog up. on his visor. Yeah. Yeah. And then he ended up, he came back in the same game, which, you know, that can't be good. And scored. Yeah. And he scored and they ended up winning the game. And like Stevens actually like, you know, gave him a lot of praise and like had nothing but good things to say about him. But either way, Stevens goes on, the Devils win the Stanley Cup at home, um, and they give the MVP to Jean-Sebastien Jaeger, which was so shitty. Right. That was so right. shitty. But, but, but we all knew that the, the reason that that happened was because the voting was split, and that's essentially why that happened. Um, but going back to, to the Korea hit, yeah, it was, it may have been a second late. All of his, all of his hits were penalty free, essentially, you know, for no, they were. Scott Stevens. I'm not, I'm not and, joking. He only got one elbowing penalty his entire career. One. Right. For, for as many right. hits as that guy threw. 
Are you freaking kidding me? Um, yeah. He became the youngest player ever to play in 1,500 games. So you think about when a player plays 1,000 games, like a Travis Ajak or something. It's like the amount of um, wear and tear that it puts on somebody's body and this and that. He played in 1,500 games. He played in the most playoff games by a defenseman, breaking his former coach Larry Robinson's record. Um, in 2003-2004, it was the last uh, season for the Devils. So um, he ended up, he was surpassed by former teammate Larry Murphy as the NHL's all-time leader in in games played by defensemen with 1,616. So he ended up, he was out for a little while. He had post-concussion syndrome, and the, the next season got canceled with the lockout, and he was never able to come back, and he ended up, he had to retire, and I, I think he wanted to play more games, but the guy played... 1,635 games, which was fourth all-time by any player. And now it's seventh all-time. It got passed by uh, Chris Chelios. He's 14th all-time in penalty minutes. So if you think about the quality of player that he was and the amount of time he did spend on the ice and the impact he had on the game, and then to think about he fought that many people. The only way to get up to that, that kind of career penalty minutes is by fighting. So the amount of him sticking up for his teammates or a t your team's not playing well one night and it needs an energy boost and he goes out there and throws down and beats up somebody. Like he, he, he led by example. It was, it was really impressive. So, like I was saying, I, I just feel like you don't get the competitiveness and the intensity in the sports now that you got back in the day. And I don't think that there are players in any of the leagues that play with the same kind of intensity that a Michael Jordan played with or Scott Stevens or a Ronnie Lott where, or, or a Lawrence Taylor where they hated the players in the other team. And I think in order to be one of the greatest ever, you have to have that like mean streak and it's just competitiveness. It makes you a better competitor if you you can't like the other players. You just can't. It's a mindset. And it doesn't mean that you can't respect them, but you can't you have to go into it knowing that they're your enemy, and you're going to do whatever you can to, to not just beat them, but smother them. And he had that. He had that ability, and uh, it, w it was unrivaled. There, was, there were very few people that could hang with him, and I feel very lucky to be able to have watched him for as long as I did and watch him win three cups and, uh, and so on and so on. But with that said, I think I've talked enough about Scott Stevens for one night. Um, yeah, I don't know. We're going to, I'm going to try to tackle, I'm going to do a Lou Lamorella one, which needs to be done. Lou gets so much flack and rightfully so he, he had a bad run at the end there, but I want to do a, a Lou Lamorello 
and I want to do uh, Scott Niedemeyer one as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, Tickle, if you want to join me for one of those, you are more than welcome to. And uh, I would love to. I would love absolutely love to. Um, I think all of the people that you had just mentioned are wildly uh, underrated in terms of sports, in terms of the NHL, and um, yeah, it would be my absolute pleasure. Well, we're going to wrap up. This is the Trap Podcast. We're going to go bust Andrew Burnett out of jail. (laughs) Thank you for uh, joining us. Thanks for joining us, guys. Have a good one. Thank you, Billy. From Big Tickle, I'm Bill Botch and Bobby. We're out. Psycho killer. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Pa 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 p